Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Reaching Your Peak. And for those of you who were at the Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky, Montana last weekend, thanks so much for coming by and saying hi. And for everybody who's sending in comments, especially, uh, getting a few questions, but a lot of comments, greatly appreciate the feedback and definitely keep that coming. Uh, for all of you who have emailed and sent in uh, contact uh, comments through the website at elktalkpodcast.com uh, regarding my Lyme disease, uh, Randy and I do plan on tackling that and sharing the full story in a regular Elk Talk podcast episode here in the near future. So Keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'd mentioned it a, a couple episodes ago, and I'll mention it again today in in uh, this episode. So I'll uh, I'll definitely do a, a deeper dive and share the the journey there with that. But for right now, let's uh, jump into another elk hunting story. During elk season in the fall of 2009, my elk hunting plans had to be scaled back somewhat due to my continuing health issues related to Lyme disease, which I'd finally been diagnosed with after getting bit by a tick the previous elk season. Even with the diagnosis several months earlier, I was still struggling to find an effective treatment and was dealing with an onslaught of unexplainable symptoms that kept popping up. Among the most troubling symptoms, especially as it related to my elk hunting, was a continuous rapid heartbeat, which hovered right around 100 beats per minute when I was at rest, and a significant restriction in my pulmonary function, which left me gasping for air at just the slightest of physical exertion. I was taking multiple supplements and medications to both fight the infection and the symptoms, but even with the little relief so far, there was just no way I was going to miss elk season. I did have to adjust my expectations of how and where I'd be able to hike and hunt, though, and I knew there was no way that we'd be able to go as far into the backcountry as we were used to going. 
we decided it would be best to just hunt from a base camp that season. And knowing I was going to be fairly limited in my physical exertion, we also knew we'd be limited in the areas we'd be able to access during our week there in elk country. Fortunately, I have the best elk hunting partner on the planet. And Donnie was more than happy to readjust our normal hunting style to make sure we were able to get out and to make the most of our elk season together. We'd hunted this particular area for a few years leading up to this season, and based on our previous experiences there, we'd identified five or six spots where we felt we should be able to get into elk without having to push too hard and without causing a season-ending crash in my health. By now, most of you probably know my hunting partner, Donnie Drake. He is as selfless and as giving as they come, both as a hunting partner and as a person, and he absolutely makes elk hunting fun. Even when things don't go as planned or things go way worse than expected, you'll never hear him complain, and his steady, laid-back demeanor is a good and much-needed balance for our hunting partnership, and that was on full display this season. We left home on a Friday afternoon, Friday, uh, September 10th to be exact, and planned to hunt through the end of the next week. The moon was just starting to show on the 10th and wouldn't really reach full moon status until the middle of the week after we were done hunting. So from a moon phase perspective, things looked great. The weather was still really hot though, but we were hunting during prime time that week right before the fall equinox and leading into a full moon. So we were confident we should be able to get into some great elk action. It's funny how confidence always seems to be at its peak just before we actually start hunting. Our first day of hunting was completely unproductive, at least from an elk finding perspective, but I did climb a really steep hillside and I made it all the way to the top thanks to Donnie's patience and encouragement. And while we didn't hear a single bugle in that first area, I did gain some confidence in my ability to hike and to be able to go where we needed to go to get into elk, still within reason, of course. The next day, we hunted our Plan B area, and shortly after daylight, it started raining. And while the rain made all the brush extremely uncomfortable to hike through, it was a welcome change in the hot, dry weather. And less than a quarter mile of hiking up the mountain, we got a bull to answer our calling. Somehow, during that first setup on that bull, Donnie and I got separated, and I ended up following the bull and his cows solo for nearly two miles as they made their way across the mountain and around to the backside where I figured they were going for their normal bedding area. I knew I'd better not drop down onto the backside of the mountain, and by that time the bull had stopped bugling anyway, or at least made it far enough ahead of me that I couldn't hear him anymore. Somewhere along that hike, whether it was in the initial setup or somewhere across the mountain during those two miles, I managed to lose my rangefinder, as well as my hunting partner. I backtracked to the place where we had first set up on the bull and searched all over in the thick brush for my rangefinder, but to no avail. I did manage to relocate Donnie though, so now we were both soaking wet and uh, it was late in the afternoon, so we made our way back down to the truck. Days three and four were more like our first day. A couple good hikes in new areas, plans C and plans D, but no bugles were to be heard. It was September 14th, 
the bulls really should have been fired up, but it almost seemed like that rain we got on day two kind of shut things down. Even though the weather was now back to normal with clear sunny days and those crisp, cool September mornings. On the morning of day five, we decided to head into a completely different area, which meant we'd have to get up extra early and drive a good 45 minutes or an hour to get to the end of a road where we wanted to start hiking to get back into the area we wanted to hunt. We'd never actually hunted up that drainage before, but we'd always eyeballed it as we drove by on the main road and always commented that it looked like a great area for elk. And it turned out our hunch was right. We hiked the last four or 500 yards of an old grown-in logging road that we'd driven in on, heading straight to the west, and came out at the edge of a big meadow that ran up the lower portion of the drainage that we were planning to hunt. The meadow continued up the drainage to the west and was filled with dead but still really tall yellow grass and several of the small pine saplings in the meadow had fresh rubs on them, which told us at least the elk had been in the area recently. I walked out to an old log landing at the end of the logging road we'd walked in on and stood there just listening for a few minutes. There was a heavy frost that covered the grass in the meadow that was out in front of us, and it felt like we should be able to hear an elk bugle from up to several miles away if there was one to bugle. From where I was standing, the meadow stretched three or four hundred yards up to my right, still heading to the west before it got swallowed up by a bunch of heavy timber and brush that was surrounding the creek, the creek that actually ran down through the meadow and back down towards where we had parked the truck. This creek came from several miles up the drainage, and the creek bottom of the drainage was mostly flat for probably three or four miles up into the head of the canyon. On both sides of the creek, though, there were really steep hillsides that went up a good thousand feet or more up to ridges that paralleled the creek all the way back to the head of the drainage. Those ridges were also parallel to each other, and with as steep as the hillsides were, the ridge tops were probably only 800 yards or so across from each other. From where we were standing, if you were looking up the drainage, the hillside on the right side of the creek would have been facing to the south, and the hillside on the left side of the creek was north-facing. So any elk that were going to be bedded in that drainage would most likely make their way up and bed on the left-hand side on that cooler north-facing hillside. That hillside, as a lot of north-facing slopes are, was covered in thick lodgepole pine and some red fir trees that were completely surrounded by a seemingly impenetrable uh, amount of alders and huckleberry brush, which was a pretty stark contrast to the fairly open and decomposed granite hillside across from it. That hillside that was on the right-hand side of the creek had very minimal cover, and it was sprinkled with some pretty mature ponderosa pine trees and a few occasional red fir. There was no bugling at all as we stood there in the early morning light, so after several minutes, I raised my bugle tube and let out a location bugle. That tight canyon that was up above us formed a pretty impressive amphitheater, and my bugle echoed off the steep hillsides for a couple seconds as it made its way all the way up the drainage. After waiting 15 or 20 seconds, uh, a bull bugled back, and he was in the creek bottom probably five or 600 yards up the drainage. 
we had a perfect wind that was coming down the drainage and it was mostly flat and easy walking through the meadow up to the edge of the timber, which started just on our side of where it sounded like the bull had bugled from. We quickly dropped off the landing and into the meadow and started following the small creek upstream toward the bugle. The grass was nearly stiff from the heavy frost and every step we made made a pretty noisy crunch as we worked our way up closer to the edge of the timber. After several minutes and without hearing any more bugles from the bull, we made it to the edge of the trees still down in the bottom of the draw and I stopped there and let out another location bugle. The bull once again answered my bugle, but he was still five or six hundred yards up the drainage ahead of us. It sounded like he was still in the bottom, but he was obviously on the move and most likely headed back to his bedding area. I bugled a couple more times from that location and the bull answered every time I bugled, but his bugles were definitely moving farther away and not coming in closer like we had hoped. Once we left the edge of the meadow and started inside the timber, there were a lot of game trails in there that made it really easy to walk along the creek bottom. And knowing the bull was moving away from us and not appearing to be at all interested in coming back to our calls, we quickly and quietly continued up the right side of the creek toward where we had last heard the bull. After another four or five hundred yards of hiking, we came to a pinch point there in the creek bottom where a finger ridge dropped off the main ridge from our right and came all the way down to the creek where we were down in the bottom. And on the left side of the canyon across the creek from us, there was another finger ridge that dropped down from that main ridge and extended across the bottom of the drainage almost to the creek. Once we made it to that point, it made sense why the bull's bugles had gotten quieter when we were down the canyon. He had obviously bugled at us before he went over the finger ridge, and then once he had dropped off the backside of the finger ridge, that little change in topography was enough to obstruct his bugle, and it made it sound like he was even farther away than what he actually was. So we climbed up that little incline out of the creek bottom, still on the right-hand side of the creek, and followed a game trail up onto the finger ridge where we were now looking all the way up into the head into the drainage. That was a perfect vantage point to bugle from, and I knew the bull, along with any other elk that might be in the canyon, would have to be able to hear us, loud and clear. I bugled from there on that little finger ridge, and just a few seconds later, the bull answered back. Again, he was quite a ways away from us, and it sounded like he was up on the hillside on the opposite side of the creek from where we were. And again, that made sense because that side was the north-facing side of the canyon. And the thick brush and the timber there would have provided great cover and cooler bedding areas for the elk. We didn't really want to just take off across the creek bottom and start climbing up the other side until we knew for sure where the bull was and made sure that we had a good bead on his exact location. So we stood there for a few minutes hoping he'd bugle again and give us a better idea of where he actually was. The sun was making its way down the hillside that we were on, and the temperature was definitely warming up pretty quickly, especially there on that open finger ridge once we had climbed out of the creek bottom. So we dropped our packs and took off a couple layers of clothing, listening for the bull to bugle again, hoping that he'd give away his location, but after a couple more minutes, he still hadn't bugled. So. We put our packs back on and I let out another bugle and the bull answered immediately, but 
his response was barely audible. We could barely hear it. It sounded like he was so far away, but we both agreed that the bugle sounded like it had come from the hillside straight across from us. Even though, again, it was so faint, we couldn't really tell how much farther up the canyon he really was. We knew the thermals were going to be changing pretty soon, and they'd start moving up the hillsides definitely before we could make it to the bowl wherever he was. So our only option was to climb straight up the finger ridge on the hillside across from us, get up above the bowl on that main ridge, and then start hiking up the ridge until we got the bowl to bugle from down below us. So that's what we did. It took forever to climb that steep hillside, and it seemed like I had to stop every four or five steps to gasp for air. Donnie even commented that he liked the pace we were climbing up the hill, which made me feel a little better that I wasn't being a complete anchor. It took over an hour to make it up to the main ridge, and from there we started hiking along the ridge top, which was mostly flat, thankfully. And we'd stop every 100 yards or so to bugle back down into the drainage we'd just climbed out of. At this point, the wind had switched up on the ridge top, and the thermals were coming up out of the bottom of the drainage up to the ridge we were on. We hiked along that main ridge for a good two miles, and finally made it back to a point where the creek bottom that was down below us in the drainage formed a basin there at the back end of the canyon. Any elk in that entire canyon had to have heard us bugle, and we hadn't gotten a single response at all since we'd left that finger ridge on the opposite side of the creek, which was several hours earlier. It was definitely frustrating, but it wasn't anything new or uncommon, just another bull had gotten the best of us. He'd ran up the bottom of the canyon and then ghosted us and went silent before we could figure out exactly where he was. Now, though... It was probably around noon. It was hot. We were a good probably four miles from the truck with no prospects of a bugling bull. And to top it off, I was exhausted and we were farther from the truck than what I really wanted to be. We turned around and started hiking slowly back down the ridge we were on with a lot less enthusiasm about stopping to bugle and after an hour or so made it back down to the finger ridge that we had hiked up out of the drainage on. I bugled from there back down into the canyon, and after not hearing anything, we took off our packs and pulled out some trail mix and some jerky and sat down to eat a bite of lunch. And I'm pretty sure I drifted off to sleep for probably 15 or 20 minutes after I finished eating, but when I woke up, I actually felt pretty rested and had some good renewed energy. And that turned out to be a good thing. We got to our feet and pulled our packs back on. And before we dropped into the thick alders and the huckleberry brush that were below the main ridge, I let out one last location bugle. At this point, it was probably 1.30 in the afternoon. And the hot air just felt heavy. There wasn't even a slight breeze in the canyon or up there on the ridge to cool things down. We didn't hear anything after that bugle, but as we turned to start making our way down the hillside and back down to the creek bottom, there was a weak bedded bugle that echoed out from clear across the canyon. It didn't make a lot of sense. Why now? It had been completely silent for at least four hours, and now clear across on the very top of the main ridge on the opposite side of the canyon, a bull bugled from his bed. The ridge top that the bugle came from was pretty much wide open, and it was definitely the hottest side of the mountain. It was facing straight south, and it was in the middle of the day. 
There was no way I was going to just drop from that ridge into the bottom and then climb up the other side of the canyon, especially for a bull that, for whatever reason, decided to bugle once there during the middle of the day. But it was still refreshing to hear a bugle, no matter how far away and no matter how weak the bugle was. We stood there listening, and I'm sure probably complaining a bit for a few minutes. Neither one of us were wanting to drop down and climb back up after the bull. We finally decided to just leave and head back down into the bottom, but I had to let out just one more bugle. And as luck would have it, the bull answered right back. You probably know where all this is heading, but after another 15 or 20 minutes of standing there and the bull continuing to answer every one of my bugles, we picked out a huge red fur snag that was right on the top of the ridge that we felt had to be really close to where the bull was bedded and bugling from. We still at that point weren't sold on the idea of climbing up that hot dry hillside, especially all the way to the top, but we at least left the option on the table and decided to see how we felt once we made it down to the bottom. It didn't take nearly as long to drop down that finger ridge as it had taken us to climb it. And once we reached the creek down there in the bottom, we both just kind of stood there staring up at that steep hillside across from us. After a couple minutes of mental wrestling, I finally said, are you up for it? And Donnie didn't even skip a beat. Just looked at me and said, yep. And just like that, we started climbing the hillside up toward the bowl. The thermals there, right during the middle of the day, probably 2 o'clock, were moving solidly up the hillside. So we had to actually angle down the canyon as we climbed up the hill to make sure our scent didn't go straight up to the bull, like it would certainly do if we tried to approach him from straight underneath. Even on the hot, dry hillside, with us angling slightly down the canyon and no longer having to fight the thick brush we had to fight when we climbed to the other side of the drainage, the climb really didn't seem as bad as I had anticipated. We made it fairly quickly up to the main ridge, probably came out on the main ridge 800 yards or so down from where the bowl was. And it probably took us 40 minutes to get up there. So once we made it to the ridge, we checked the wind and the wind was still perfect. It was moving up, but with us being on the ridge top, it was actually going across the ridge and down the backside. So as long as we stayed right there on the top of the ridge, and as long as the thermal stayed consistent, the bull wasn't going to smell us as we moved up the ridge towards him. The hiking on the ridge was easy. It was mostly flat, a little bit of an incline, and there was a good game trail right on the top of the ridge, which made our approach toward the bull pretty much silent. We covered probably 400 yards and came to a small saddle there on the main ridge and figured we were probably 400 yards or so from the bull, so we stopped. At this point, it was probably 3.30, and we hadn't heard the bull bugle since we were about halfway down that opposite hillside, but even if he had bugled at all from that point, we probably wouldn't have heard him just because we were down on the bottom or as we were coming up the, the hillside he was on, we were kind of wrapped around the hillside from him. I decided from there that I'd give a location bugle just to see if the bull would respond and maybe give us a better idea of exactly where he was. And as soon as I bugled, the bull fired right back and he was probably only 200 yards up the main ridge from us. And at that point, his bugle was pretty intense and we could tell it was the same bull that had been bugling that morning that we had lost track of. 
Donnie immediately started dropping down the hillside below me, and I moved up the ridge toward the bull, but I didn't make it even 10 steps probably, and could see the bull coming down the ridge in our direction. There was just a little patch of timber, maybe 30 yards or so below me, and slightly behind me still on the hillside. And as Donnie tucked himself in behind that timber patch, he let out a couple cow calls. And when he did, the bull stopped on the ridge and bugled back. And before he could even finish his bugle, Donnie cut him off with a really aggressive challenge. At that point, the bull turned off the main ridge and just dropped straight down the hill, still a good 80 or maybe 100 yards out in front of me. There was just enough cover between me and the bull that I was able to scramble up ahead another 15 or 20 yards and got to a good place to set up and dropped down to my knees and knocked an arrow. I went to reach for my rangefinder to range a couple landmarks and realized that I'd lost my rangefinder a couple days before, so I was on my own. I quickly estimated the distance to a stump that I could see there at the edge of some lodgepole pine trees at about 40 yards. And as soon as I did, I immediately caught movement coming down the hill in front of me. So I just came straight to full draw. And just as I got to full draw, the bull stopped. And he was still behind that little clump of lodgepoles and just above the stump that I had just estimated at 40 yards. He turned and looked right in my direction, but couple of really well-timed cow calls from Donnie took his focus off me and he looked down towards Donnie and bugled. Donnie again cut him off immediately with a challenge and with the bull's focus not on me and with him still behind those lodgepole pines, I decided to let my bow down. The bull stood there for probably four or five minutes. He'd look in my direction, Donnie would cow call and the bull would look down the hill at Donnie and bugle and then Donnie would cut him off with another challenge and finally just when I thought there was no chance of the bull stepping out from behind the lodgepole pines he had stopped there he should be able to see an elk down where Donnie was bugling from and he couldn't and I really thought it was over but all of a sudden the bull just dropped his guard and walked right out into the open and I couldn't draw because he was in the open but as he walked down the hill he went behind a tree and I just real quickly yanked my bow back to full draw and let out a cow call. And at the exact same time, settled my 40-yard pin just slightly high uh, above his vitals. When I cow called, the bull stopped and looked back in my direction. And I was already locked in, squeezed the trigger, and heard a solid thump from my arrow connecting with the body. And the bull turned and crashed uh, across the hillside going away from me. So I just quietly slipped back to where Donnie had been calling from and to make sure that we didn't make a lot of noise, we hiked back up to the main ridge and then dropped off the backside of the ridge, probably 40 or 50 yards to wait our customary 30 minutes after the shot. Sitting there like that for 30 or 40 minutes after a shot is absolutely grueling. It seems like time just stands still and 30 minutes becomes an eternity, but it gave me plenty of time to reflect and to absorb yet another lesson that I had learned in elk country. When it comes to elk hunting success, confidence is critical. And confidence in my gear and my equipment is something I'm just not willing to compromise. And that's why I shoot a prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. 
cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first prime bow, it was tuned and my arrows were flying perfectly. The draw cycle was smooth and the back wall was solid and they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about prime stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. And now, back to reaching your peak. I don't think that was the first elk that I'd shot during the middle of the day, but it was the first time that I started drawing conclusions as to why midday hunting was so effective. Before I jump too far into midday hunting though, I want to mention that we're pretty sure the reason we thought the bull was on the other side of the canyon when he had last bugled that morning was due to his bugle echoing. He likely had climbed up the hillside on the right side of the creek along that finger ridge, and with us being below him and in the bottom of the canyon, when he did bugle from up above us, it echoed, and it made it sound like he was on the opposite side, which was probably a good thing. Had we known he was on the ridge above us there, we would have probably tried to follow him up that ridge and got to the top right about the time the thermals changed, which would have likely blown him completely out of the area. But luck was on our side, and the several hours it took us to climb the other hillside and then scour the ridge up and down looking for the bull was what the bull needed for us to be able to re-engage him. Since that hunt, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many elk we've called in and shot during the middle of the day. It's absolutely become one of my favorite times to hunt elk. There's no doubt that the first and last hours of daylight produce more bugles and more elk vocalization than any other time of the day, but elk are typically on the move during those hours, and calling a bull away from his moving herd can be challenging, which is exactly what we experienced that morning. The bull was vocal, but he was moving away from us, and he was moving fast. If I can find a bull or a herd that's not on the move, I feel a lot more confident in my chances of calling that bull in. Believe me, I'm a huge fan of naps during elk season, but I have found that getting in close to elk and calling bulls in increases exponentially during the middle of the day. And the reason for that is simple. The cows are bedded down and they aren't on the move. During the mornings and the evenings when you're most likely to hear the most bugling action, the cows are generally on the move and they're headed to or from their feeding areas and their bedding areas. The bulls are just following the cows and while it might seem like the bulls are the ones that are in charge, the cows are usually the ones that are leading the movements. If you were to slip up behind a herd as it's moving from its feeding area toward its bedding area in the morning like we did here, the bull might get agitated at your calling and might make a few stands, but the chances of him turning around and leaving the herd to come back into your setup is actually pretty low. 
I've heard a lot of elk hunters describe the actions of herd bulls as bugling and running. And this is due mostly to the fact that they're aggravated at the presence of another bull, but they aren't going to turn around and come in to do anything about it. It's not at all uncommon for a herd bull to follow his cows for two or three miles as they make their way back to their bedding area, bugling and running the entire way. It's not that he's necessarily running away from a challenger, but more so that he's running just to keep up with the cows. Once the cows stop to bed down though, the bull's going to stop as well. And that's the perfect setting to be able to work your calling magic. A bull's emotions and his emotional responses are going to be magnified when he's in his bedding area. Whether it's cow calls or bugles, if they happen in close proximity to his bedding area, the likelihood of the bull responding is going to go way up. Elk aren't usually nearly as vocal during the middle of the day when they're bedded down, but a herd bull is usually going to respond to a location bugle or a cow call if you're in close. Sometimes they'll answer from clear across a canyon like this bull did. He went four hours without responding at all, but then right in the middle of the day, he lit up from clear across the canyon. Since that experience, if I find a bull that's bugling from his bed during the middle of the day, I get there as fast as I can. That bull can almost always be called in and killed. The first key to effectively calling elk is to get as close to him as possible before you set up and start calling. For a bedded bull, he's no longer on the move with his cows, and he's much more apt to get up and come in to investigate a lonely cow that's wandered dangerously close to his bedroom. So because of that, I always like to start off my calling sequence with a cow call. There's really no reason for him not to get up and come check out this new cow. A bedded bull might try to bugle and just convince the cow to make the effort to come to him, but usually a couple of persuasive cow calls is enough to convince him to get up and come into her. At the very least, the bull will usually bugle back to the cow calls to let her know that he's there, and if he doesn't jump right up and come into those cow calls, no worries. There's an even more exciting option. Just like what we saw with Donnie's calling on this hunt, the bull was interested in the cow calls, but it was the challenging bugles that cut him off when he bugled that broke him loose and brought him down the hillside. When a bull responds to cow calls, he's having a conversation with that cow. And if another unknown bull happens to be hanging out with that cow and immediately screams at the bull before he even finishes his pickup line, he takes that seriously. He's just been challenged. And to make matters worse, the bull that challenged him has walked right up into his bedroom to issue that challenge. And then to add insult to injury, this embarrassing situation has just unfolded right there in front of that bull's own cows. If the emotions he was feeling to come in and fight weren't enough on their own, there's no longer the distraction of a moving herd to bring him back to his senses. The most efficient, and I mean fast and furious call-ins that I've ever witnessed, have been while calling to a herd bull while he's bedded down in his bedding area. If I know where the elk are heading to bed down, or if I happen to catch up with the bull as he's making it into his bedding area, I like to give him a good 30 or 60 minutes after they've bedded down before I slip in and try to get the bull riled up. Every area is going to be different as far as what time of the day the elk bed down, but I'd say it's generally going to be in September 9.30 to 10.30 or so in the morning. And I found that time right after they bed down to be pretty good for calling bulls in. 
but the absolute most effective time that I found for calling embedded bulls is a little later on, probably between 12.30 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. A lot of hunters criticize that midday hunting strategy, mostly due to the risk of blowing the elk out of their bedding areas and sending them scattering into another canyon. But due to the effectiveness of calling during the middle of the day, I found that that typically isn't really a concern. I won't go as far as to say that it's guaranteed. Obviously, when it comes to elk hunting and calling elk, nothing is. But I will say that for us, hunting elk in their bedding areas during the middle of the day has probably displaced more elk in game bags than by bumping them out of the area. So until next time, I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bedded down and bugling.